Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast, this is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on the latest developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Monday the 11th of December. On today's program, a closer look at new minimum wage recommendations. Mobilizing climate finance for developing countries. Former politician Tony Leon on why business needs to step up to the plate in fixing South Africa and how to keep staff motivated over the busy Christmas rush. A very warm welcome and let's start with this. The National Minimum Wage Commission has published a new report on the annual review of the wage recommending a CPI plus 3% for 2024. Someone who's had a close look at that study and is at the coalface of the argument is Kasatu's Matthew Parks in Parliament. He joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And Matthew, first of all, I imagine you would support that recommendation. Yes, no, we're quite pleased. The Commission made a call for comments. Closing is 8th of January. We had made a submission as COSATU to the Commission earlier this year after the initial request for public comments. And we had requested CPI plus 3%. They normally take the last six weeks before the Minister announces it. So, so basically, they'll take CPI for December, roughly, probably around 5%. And then if you add 3%, that takes you to about 8%. But we think it's important because the minimum wage is a key poverty alleviation tool. It's really aimed at about 6 million poorly paid workers, so this will help protect them from inflation. And often inflation tends to be a little bit harsher for low-income workers because you find food inflation, transport, electricity, the things that consume most of their basket, tends to be a little bit higher than the overall inflation rate. But we welcome it, and um, we think it is going to help to protect low-income earners. I'm just wondering uh, whether it really does cover the basic cost of living, particularly for people and their families in urban areas, you're in Cape Town, I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg, where we know the cost of living is typically higher. I mean, it doesn't, to be honest. and It's not a living wage. You know, those are kind of big distinctions, a lot of debate around it. But the idea is that this is the floor below which no one should be paid. So it's not a living wage by any long shot. If you earn a minimum wage, you know, you work full month, you probably get about 4,800 rand. I think the most people estimate a living wage to be around 7,500 rand. Even that, that's not really going to carry you. It depends how many people you support. But it has been a positive push upwards. If you remember, you know, when we had the Dodorans farm workers strike about 10 years ago, mm. workers that time in the farming sector were getting paid as little as six rand an hour. The current minimum wage is about 25 rand, 42 cents an hour. And if the minister does agree to the CPI plus 3%, that should take it to about 27 rand, 50. So that's a significant improvement. But yeah, given the levels of inflation and the cost of living, you're still going to be in deep poverty. Do you still have concerns about implementation, particularly with small and medium enterprises? We do, and there's been research by the University of Cape Town research, which has been good and bad. Positive part is that it hasn't shown any significant job losses. That is a fear the business had raised when it was coming to effect, so that's the positive part. 
But we have also seen research showing about 45% of relevant employers not complying. And that obviously be, you know, employers of domestic workers, farm workers, etc. So that's quite concerning. Um, these are largely kind of unorganized sectors of the workforce in South Africa and like any other country in the world. So that is a bit concerning. But look, we've never expected full compliance with the law when it came to effect. Um, you never had that with all laws. But the idea is to begin to nurture society in a particular direction and over time to improve compliance. But it does mean that as trade unions, we must do much more to recruit those workers, to also explain to workers what are their rights, how to exercise them. Uh, there's an obligation upon the Department of Labor to have more inspections of workplaces to ensure compliance. And of course, you know, the leadership of business too, um, who also sit in the Minimum Wage Commission, they need to do more as well to conscientize their own members to make sure they are in compliance with the minimum wage. The president signed an amendment to the employment equity this year so that any company which wants to do business with the state also now has to be in compliance with the minimum wage as well. So I'm hoping that will also help shift the needle in a positive way. Mm. Matthew Parks, I'm interested that you use the word nurture in that reply. I'm just wondering if there are issues with compliance, how you change the compliance debate. Do you need to become more punitive? There already is a punitive element to it of fines. One can argue that they're not harsh enough and some employers could just budget for them in the event that they're caught. So... We need to have a bit more of a harsh approach. But also, I mean, the most effective way to ensure compliance with any law is actually to incentivize. So that's why we were quite pleased when the Employment Equity Act was amended to now say if you want to attend with the state, you need a compliance certificate that you're in compliance with the Minimum Wage Act, with the Employment Equity Act by the Department of Labor, because that's a powerful way to reward employers who abide by the law, who show good labor practices, and of course to, in effect, penalize those who don't. Because it's difficult. I mean, the Department of Labor can't be in all workplaces. You've got more than a million workplaces, and they have about one and a half thousand inspectors. You can't be everywhere. Only one quarter of workers are unionized. And in these kind of sectors like agriculture, it's it's far less than that. Domestic workers mm-hmm. is very, very low by its nature. So you've got to have a multi-pronged approach, but also means we have to do more as unions to educate workers. I think one of the most difficult things, though, is that if you have an unemployment rate of 41 percent, Many workers will be aware of their rights, but they'll be too scared of losing their job to exercise their rights. So they'll rather suffer in silence because they know there is very little opportunities out there for people who are unemployed. I want to return to the Department of Labor, if we can, and its efforts to monitor compliance. People that I've spoken to, and you've kind of borne this out with a number of just over a thousand inspectors, say that the work they do is patchy at best. Surely, unless there is an uptick, uh, an improvement in capacity in that respect, uh, this uh, initiative is never really going to fly successfully. Yeah, no, it's patchy at best. And we've also had a lot of complaints from shop stores, too, who have complained that when inspectors come to a workplace, they just go straight to the HR manager or the employer. They have coffee behind closed doors. And they don't even talk to workers who are experiencing real difficulties. So that's been a, a concern. But it doesn't mean that you know life is difficult that we simply give up. It just means we've got to do better. We've got to be smarter about it. The Department of Labor set up a call-free hotline where workers could uh, report non-compliant employers. And unfortunately, that fell on its face because the Department of Labor didn't bother to populate it, to resource it, or to popularize it. So there are lots of challenges, but we, we are seeing improvements increasingly. And we had expected a flood of employers applying for exemption um, as they're entitled to under the law. And uh, only about 2,000 actually did so. So, yeah, there was quite a few teething problems in the beginning. Even companies who falsely claimed to have an exemption from the Department of Labor were even fraudulently producing certificates. But it's increasingly decreasing as the law 
gets increasingly understood and entrenched and so forth. Matthew Parks, if we can just end with one other issue which is not aligned to national minimum wage, Kasatu uh, calling on government to ensure that this uh, soon-to-be-established investigating directorate against corruption be properly funded. What is Kasatu's concern around that, and are you confident that it will be? So, I mean, because the law is good, okay, there are issues with it, but, you know, any tool which, you know, helps strengthen the NPA to tackle corruption, I'm as welcome. And obviously we all know, and I think everybody agrees, irrespective of our political party views, that corruption is endemic across society, especially in the state. So I consider that it's a good law in establishing this dedicated unit within the NPA to focus on corruption. That's great. But we see high levels of prosecuting vacancies in the NPA. We all know about that in the courts. It can take you easily two years to get your case heard. And with serious crimes, far longer than that. If you look at the example of the mayor of Etequini, the former mayor, rather, um, she was charged, has been out of court for some time, but the trial hasn't even begun properly. We've seen the previous issues of um, lack of competency or preparation by the MPA around other high-level corruption cases like Estina, etc. And often those are linked to lack of sufficient skills within the NPA, etc. At the same time, if you look at the police service, when you held the World Cup in 2010, we had about 208,000 members of the police service. Today, it's just over 170,000, yet the population has grown significantly, crime is rising, etc. So it's great to have these laws. We all support them, but if you don't put the resources there, then how do we expect it to be enforced? Um, in the medium-term budget statement Parliament in November, the budget indicated that the police salary bill, the increase in the wage agreement, would be funded by allowing the police headcount to shrink further. And that, for us, just doesn't make sense. So governor's great at you know, passing progressive laws, but when it comes to resourcing it, there are significant challenges. And for us, that's the, the, the disappointing thing. You raise people's hopes, only to dash them later. Matthew Parks from Kasatu, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Tony Leon served as leader of the opposition from 1999 to 2007 as head of the Democratic Alliance and led the party from its inception in 2000. Like him or loathe him, he has strong opinions on politics, society and the economy, and he is not afraid to express them. He's our next guest on the Last Fix SA podcast for 2024. It drops on Friday. And among the issues covered is South Africa's poly crisis and his assertion that business leaders are now being forced to fill the governance vacuum. Here is an excerpt from that conversation. So, Tony Leon, let me uh, give you the keys to Tainhais, uh, something that in your political career eluded you. And uh, I've given you the presidential powers for uh, a couple of days. And your single task is to prioritize what needs to be fixed first. Where do you start and who do you call to help you? Oh, I would, uh, if, if I knew I was going to become president, I would have had a search team in advance to work out the greatest bottlenecks or throttle points on our economy and therefore on the country's well-being. And I would have a team lined up to ready to step in and to take over. I would also obviously require certain extraordinary powers, which have to be carefully delimited under our constitution, to be able to hire and fire key people who are currently part of the problem and not part of the solution. This will be quite technically awkward, but I'm sure with enough will and with enough golden handshakes could be done. So the first thing would be to change the personnel. And then I would have a legislative package to bring to Parliament, which presumably if I became president, I'd have some uh, say over. And I'd say, okay, these are the 10 areas of governance which have absolutely failed from Public Finance Management Act 
to the Public Service Act, which facilitated Cape deployment. And these are the amendments. So in other words, I, I would have planned it to the extent I had any notes at all in advance so that I could hit the ground running. You know, one of Tob and Becky's ministers, whom I saw the other day, said to me, he, he wonders why Ramaphosa gets up in the morning. Why does he want to be president other than to have it on his resume? What's he do? What's his theory of the case? It's a very good question. So I would have a theory of the case and I would put in place, or I'd, in anticipation, the legislative, the regulatory, and the personnel steps and changes to really bring about mm. a turnaround. And obviously, you can turn things around. I, you know, there's no situation in the world. It's an extreme example. I've just come back at my ripe old age of a first visit to Japan a few weeks ago. Now, you know, you, I guess you saw and some of your listeners would have seen that movie Oppenheimer. You know, Japan was absolutely devastated in the Second World War. Well, it survived uh, you know, death and destruction and uh, two nuclear bombs, and it survived seven years of American occupation. In fact, in many ways, it Americanized itself. It melded together in very ancient culture, a very nationalistic culture, with a more international worldview. And it, although the Japanese economy had some big issues recently, it is an extraordinarily successful and seems to be on the surface fairly harmonious society in the Far East that has, you know, both Confucian and First World values. So Driven, driven, Tony Leon, by a work ethic. By an unbelievable work ethic. <laughs> I was getting on the Shenkensen, uh, the bullet train, going to a place called Kanazawa, and, and there was some Brit standing next to me. And it, you stand at, I don't know if you've been to Japan, but, you, you know, you stand at number eight because that means you're in carriage number eight. You've got a ticket, mm. and that's, the train stops right in front of you, and it stops at 15.26, and that's, it leaves at 15.26. It's got a minute to get on board. And this Brit said to me, well, you rather think, if it arrived at 15.27, 15.26, the chairman of Japan Railways would uh, resign. I said, or commit harikiri. But the point is, Jeremy, there's a work ethic. There's a deep sense, cultural sense of responsibility and answerability. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's impressive, at least on the surface. And I obviously only encountered the surface. And I'm not saying you can bring in Shintoism or Buddhism into South Africa. We, we, we're not of that culture. But I think there are elements of our culture which are impressive and which do resonate and which can be applied but have been grotesquely used and abused in the last few years. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. As COP28 finishes in Dubai to discuss global commitments to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, the big consultancy McKinsey has published a new analysis on the need for mobilizing climate finance for developing countries. Dr. Hauke Engel is a partner at McKinsey's Nairobi office, and he's with us now on the program. And firstly, doctor, how are developing countries doing in achieving the global net zero emissions target? And I guess what unique difficulties or challenges are they facing? Yeah, no, thanks for the question, Jeremy. So developing countries, of course, face a quite different set of challenges compared to the industrialized countries, right? Industrialized countries are typically growing at a much smaller clip, much smaller growing economies. And so they are focused on decreasing emissions in an absolute sense and have done so fairly successfully over the last decade or so. Probably not at the rate required, but at least there's progress in, in bending the curve. Developing countries on the other side of course, are rightfully aiming for significant growth in GDP per capita yeah, to achieve the, the prosperity that, that industrious countries are already enjoying. So the relevant metric for developing countries is probably more emissions intensity. So how much is emitted per unit GDP? 
and again, I think we've seen progress there, right? And I think the big point that we're also trying to socialize to mainstream with the article we put out is that it's really important to recognize just how important developing countries are in the global climate equation, right? So given that we need to get to net zero uh, within the next couple of decades on a global total, we cannot achieve mm. that without developing countries also reducing emissions, right? Well, of course, the industrialized countries have emitted the vast majority of the historical emissions to date. If we might wind the movie forward on current projections, we would see without decisive climate action also by the still developing countries, a significant increase in their emissions so that they would account actually for the majority of emissions. And hence, it's vitally important, even though they haven't emitted as much historically, if we want to hold climate change, that we also achieve a green growth pathway for developing countries. And in that, uh, in that greater equation, do you think sometimes that the importance is diminished as far as developing countries are concerned and the important role that they have to play? I think that's partially true to date. Right? I think we, we're seeing that change slowly. And of course, we're also you know, trying to support that. So if you look at the climate kind of conversation to date, it has been primarily focused on adaptation resilience uh, as far as developing countries are concerned. Rightfully so, I need to add, right, since these countries do are most likely to bear the, the majority of the impact. Right, These countries are more exposed to physical risks caused by the changing climate, and they're typically also less able to deal with the impacts, right, given that they're just poorer and have less institutional capacities, uh, you know, financial means to rebuild, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At the same time, I think it's not an either-or. We absolutely do need to pay attention to adaptation resilience in those countries, but it's equally important to, that we achieve a green growth pathway for, for those countries. I think that's something that hasn't been sufficiently recognized mm. in the previous years, but that it is slowly starting to change. So, Dr. Engel, fundamentally, though, it, it all comes down to money, doesn't it? So do you have any sense of the estimated investment requirements for developing countries to limit temperature increase and make that all-important transition to a low-carbon economy? Yes, yeah, so we did some work on this recently, right, looking at the breadth of research and modeling that has been done externally and also looking at our own models that we have in-house. And kind of the, the range of numbers kind of anchors on a median of around two and a half trillion dollars required by 2030, which is, you know, for all developing countries, excluding China, that will be required solely for climate mitigation, right? So achieving green growth, protecting natural capital, et cetera, et cetera which is, of course, on top of the very significant investment that is anywhere required for the underlying development pathways of those countries, right? Investment in human capital, education, healthcare, overall infrastructure, which would add another $3 trillion that's required. So how do you bridge that financing gap? Well, it's a big gap, right? I think that's the first thing to recognize. It's a very significant gap. If we look at the climate finance flowing to those countries right now, or a few years ago, which is the most recent aggregate set of numbers that, that are available, it's around 500 billion, right? So 500 out of 2,500 is flowing right now. So we've got a gap of around $2 trillion that we need to mm. bridge if we look towards 2030. And honestly, it's going to be a, it's a stretch. It's, it's a really significant gap. And we probably have to, we absolutely will have to tap all available sources of financing to do this, right? We'll have to make sure we tap domestic sources of capital in those countries. So the, the, the sovereign financing capability through, through taxation or sovereign borrowing, but also critically sovereign, uh, sorry, domestic private sector capital, right? We start seeing significant savings from pension funds, private households in those countries that are currently actually usually flowing to investments outside those countries, right? Into the developed investment markets in, in the US and, and Europe, for example, right? So it's kind of diverting those domestic savings also towards 
investments in country is going to be critical, right? So domestic resource mobilization, but also, of course, overseas finance, right? So private sector investment is going to be critical from the global financial markets. The, the challenge for that, of course, is that typically those investments are not in the money right now, right? Given that a lot of the many of the green technologies are still not fully at, at cost parity. So we will need concessional finance, right? Public sector finance, either from government donors, like the industrialized countries or from philanthropic sources to catalyze the private sector investments, right? So to to de-risk them, so to bring these investment needs into the money so private sector capital can come in and and fill the gap. Um, Dr. Engel, theoretically that all makes sense, but if we talk about domestic resource mobilization, you will concede, particularly in poorer countries, that it can be onerous, difficult, if not impossible, and also often very unpopular because of competing priorities. Absolutely right. Look, I mean, if you look across all these financing sources, none of this is going to be easy, right? And we, in the research we just published, we try to lay out how the gap could be bridged. But, you know, we had to take fairly optimistic assumptions across all of these sources of capital to achieve that, right? So we had to assume a significant increase of tax take to bring taxation as a share of GDP, uh, not in absolute terms, but share of GDP in line with what we're seeing in OECD countries. We also had to assume a significant increase, what's called leverage ratios, right? So if you put in a dollar of concessional capital from, let's say, a philanthropy, how much private sector capital does that mobilize? And we had to assume a net increase, a significant net increase in concessional capital, right? So none of this is going to be easy. But of course, particularly the domestic resource mobilization part is very difficult. And clearly, this this is not just the job of the, the governments in those countries, right? The, the global community absolutely has to help, right? We're thinking about how do we have better developed repo markets for for sovereign bonds to increase liquidity, to reduce the liquidity premium. How do we help those countries conduct reforms to to decrease country risk, right, so that the cost of capital in those countries decreases. But yeah, it is hard. It's going to be very, very difficult. Appreciate you talking to me, Dr. Hauke Engel from uh, McKinsey. Thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. With many people looking to wind down and enjoy some quality time with friends and family over this holiday season, for some businesses, this is the busiest time of the year and where they make most of their profit. And a common challenge for such organizations, including food franchises, is keeping staff motivated and ensure that they continue to deliver the best service possible while having to work long hours. It's a difficult balancing act, isn't it? Well, Morne Cronier is head of franchising at FNB and is going to share some thoughts on that particular conundrum. Mornay, first of all, how tough is it for staff at the moment? Look, I think it's twofold, tough for staff and owners. Where we're coming from, tough economic times, we've just mentioned load shedding, is that this festive season is so important for business owners, franchisees, um, in order for them to make up, for let's call it last time, we're actually getting those profits going. Obviously, being a business owner, a lot of people are on holiday, your staff see people being on holiday. So I think it's very important to have that communication going, keep them motivated to say, listen, there's a common goal. What we achieve during this festive season is actually giving up um, sustainability in keeping our business going. But what the small business owner will often do then is to push staff as hard as they can and understandably. But do they do that unreasonably sometimes, do you think? 
Look, I think it, it all depends on the business owner and his relationship he's got with his staff. Obviously, there is business owners that do the wrong thing. But hopefully what we've seen in franchising and success stories that we've seen is really those franchisees that's building a business based on the sustainability and the support from their staff. There's a common goal. Staff know what they're working for. There's incentive structures in place. There's great communication in place. The staff wants to come to work. They see the benefit and they see happy customers. So let's talk about incentive and communication in just a moment. But more broadly, what would cause demotivation, particularly at this time of the year? Are people just overwhelmed? Look, I think it's, uh, let's start, it's probably hours of work unrealistic hours, the amount of hours the staff needs to work, no open communication, maybe not incentive schemes being in place, and it's and it's just a case with staff feeling they're not heard. So, I mean, it's, it's all that common goal. I think everything it, we've, we've seen with franchisees that's working very well or businesses that's doing very well, there's a common goal. The owner, the manager, and the staff members, they, they believe in that goal and they work together. So you've got to weigh that up, though, Mornay, against uh, the old trope that, you know, you're lucky to have a job. And, you know, sometimes you've just got to, uh, what's the word, fussbait and, you know, <laughs> knuckle down and work as hard yeah. as you can. Yeah, look, I always go out and say franchising is an active investment. And we really see where owners are actively involved in their business. There's also change in attitude in the staff members and we see staff members working extremely hard in different franchise businesses just because the owner is also putting his weight he's not phoning in every second day he's working with them they know what the purpose is they know what the goal is there's possibly communication that went out that they can share in in like as mentioned in some form of incentive scheme and obviously no if they work hard now they build customers for life and they actually can have a job for the new future Difficult in this economic climate, though, to incentivize meaningfully, particularly when it's a small franchise business, I imagine. Yes, it is. And and I think incentives can be in different forms. I mean, incentives does not always need to be in the form of money. It can be in flexible working hours. It can maybe be in the form of bringing a friend or girlfriend or wife or husband for a free dinner. I think that's a beauty of franchise where the business owner really understands and know what his staff, um, what makes them tick. And I think that's what we that's what we're referring to. And, and hopefully also if they've got a common goal, if they have a very good festive season, there will be money to prop, to probably incentivize them if it's a money incentive these guys are looking for. Monet Cronier, you also make the point about the importance of hiring temporary staff during peak seasons to help in maintaining motivation levels. Um, I understand what you're trying to say, but that can also be perceived as a threat, surely. Yeah, it can be. But again, I think it comes to, you know, what's the purpose. But also, I think even though it's a threat, it also shows your staff members that there are people that's willing to work. There's people that are looking for jobs out there. And if you're not putting your weight, there's always a chance that you're not going to you're going to lose your job. But ultimately, the purpose of, of having these temporary staff is to lighten the load. And I think that's what you need to explain to existing staff members. You're actually lightening the load and make it more enjoyable for everyone that's working in the business. There are extended working hours that we've spoken about, particularly during the festive season, and we're in the height of that uh, in the height of that right now. What you've also got to do, I guess, is to put measures in to prevent employee fatigue. You've spoken about proper communication. You've spoken about effective commission or incentive. But you know, sometimes people just need to to defocus, don't they? And often, with the relentless pace of customers, that's very difficult to do. 
Definitely, but I think that's where this beauty of temporary staff is coming in. Mm. Is, is if you start looking at flexible working hours, if a manager is on the pulse, if he's actively involved in the business, he can see, he can sense what the fatigue levels, and he can actually understand. He or she can actually understand where the levels of fatigue are and where he needs to get this temporary staff in. And instead of maybe permanent staff starting at eight, you know what? Tomorrow you're starting at ten. Or instead of finishing at eight to night, you know, we're finishing at six. And I think that's just all being involved in your business and understanding your permanent staff members. But I think that's the beauty of where temporary staff can play a massive role in reducing that fatigue levels of your permanent staff. And just a final question and more broadly, what does the franchise landscape look like in 2024? I think it's very positive. Unfortunately, as as mentioned when we started, there is always the risk of load shedding. It is difficult, but I think it's positive. Um, we always say in franchising, you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. There's a lot of structures out there. You're part of a family, part of a business model that worked. They, they, like all no, there are constraints, electricity, minimum wage. There are things that's a little bit of a heavy load on business owners, but we believe there's huge opportunity. We believe there's opportunity for the strong brands, strong franchisees to get bigger. There's always little hidden gems for new entrants into market. But as we always say, is just do your homework. Make sure you speak to the right people. But the future for of franchising, definitely, definitely positive. And what sectors are going to find favor, do you think? I think retail. I think retail went through a little bit of a dip. But obviously, grocery retail, people need to eat. We've always seen restaurants. What I would like to see, and I think that's something that's probably lacking in South Africa, is the services, the services area. Um, where I think we will pick up on the service franchisee side. And then also, I think as we see people are buying less and less new cars, your let's call it your non-structural your structural repairs, your 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 tire sales, battery sales, windscreen repairs. I think there's definitely a big tick. And then obviously as consumer spend probably gets a little bit less and people not going on holiday, a lot of those money that's available is now being spent at home. And that's why I also predict the uptick in hardware, construction, those kind of services. Morne Cronier, Head of Franchising at FNB, thank you very much indeed. And that's where we're going to leave it for today. MoneyWeb at Midday is live at noon weekdays, and then we are up as a podcast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.